Happy Lord's Day. I'm glad to see you, and I love you. Let me explain what's going to happen today. Uh, we are working our way through the book of Hebrews, and we're explaining it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And today, I'm going to be reading one verse. It comes from Hebrews chapter 13. I'm going to do my best to explain that verse, and in the midst of that explanation will come most of our application. But at the end of the message, I'm going to ask three questions. I'm going to ask three questions. So our passage today is Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. I would ask, please, if you have a copy of the scripture, that you would turn to that. And once you have turned to that, please stand and listen as I read our text. Hear the word of the Lord, Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Father in heaven, as we approach a very sensitive topic today, I pray that you would give me grace to deliver this in a way which is to the point, um, Lord, but yet very gracious. And I pray, dear Lord, that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ would be at work to convict us of our sins, and Lord, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ would be at work to forgive us of our sins. Uh, help us, Lord, to honor marriage, to understand it. Lord, may our marriages reflect, Lord, your gospel. Help us, Lord. We cannot do this on our own. We cry out to you, and we ask it in the name of Jesus, our King and our friend. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. point of the Bible is Jesus. The point of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better than anything in Judaism. And the point of the final chapter in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, is that we are to be doers of the word, that faith without works is dead. Uh, the one verse that we are looking at today in chapter 13 is going to be a verse which addresses the topic of marriage and intimacy. Now, I'm going to do the very best that I can to stick to the passage and not expand this into a topical sermon on matrimony and morality. Also, it is my goal today to communicate in terms which are euphemistic and tasteful rather than to unnecessarily be shocking or coarse or crude. At the same time, I am going to be using cross-references to support the meaning of the passage, and at the same time, I'm at times going to have to speak in uh, direct, bold, unambiguous terms in order to get the message through. We're going to be following a fairly straightforward outline today. Point number one, context is important. Point number two, uh, marriage is important. Point number three, morality is important. Uh, point number one, context is important. By context, I do not mean where this verse fits into chapter 13, what comes before it and what comes after it. Now, that is important, but that's not what I'm referring to when I say context. When I say context, I mean the fact that this verse even appears at all 
in the verse in the book of Hebrews is very, very important. And follow my logic. If you've been with us as we've been studying the book of Hebrews from the very beginning, then I don't have to tell you that this is a very theologically rich book with a lot of Christological complexities. This is the book back in chapter 1, which gave us these words in verse 3. He, speaking of God's Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Theologically rich. This is the book over in chapter 6, verse 20, which gave us these words where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That is theologically rich. Uh, this is the book over in chapter 7, verse 28, that gave us these words. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever." That is theologically rich, and it's the same book that gave us over in chapter 9, verse 23, these words. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. I preached on that verse. I still don't know what it means. This is theologically rich, and I think you get the idea. This is a book which requires a lot of concentration and effort to follow. The people to whom the book of Hebrews was written were well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures. They were intelligent people. They were theologically minded. They were Christians who were deeply interested in Christology, that is, the person and work of Christ. And yet, as rich as it is theologically, God the Holy Spirit finds it necessary to include a verse for these people and for us on marriage and mating, which tells me a couple of things. First of all, that human beings, no matter how much they may be interested in other subjects, math and money, medicine and the Mets, are still human beings, and as human beings, the subject of opposite gender familiarity, love, romance, the birds and the bees, has relevance to all people, and you are one of those people. Uh, this is evident, evident uh, due to the fact that our planet is populated, and there ain't but one way to get that done. You see, our subject today transcends time, it transcends culture. It's, it's even of interest to theological geeks, and it is of interest to you no matter who you are or no matter what your interests may be. You see, God knows that this is a relevant topic, and so he includes it even in the most theologically thought-provoking book in the New Testament. All that to say, you are not strange, you are not odd, you are not ungodly if you think about love and marriage. It is a subject of interest to you, and that is not a bad thing. 
And the reason that you think about it is because you you are an image bearer of God. The second thing that this context tells me that this verse would even appear in this book is that this whole idea of a man and a woman coming together in a covenant relationship which includes the bed is his idea. It's his plan and it's his gift. And it is all over the word of God. For example, in Genesis 2.18, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Or how about Proverbs 18.22? He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Or how about Proverbs 5.18 and 19? Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. So as we read these verses, we come to the conclusion that contrary to popular opinion, intimacy and acquaintance physically between two people is not dirty. It is not demonic. It is not worldly. It is not bad. It is quite the opposite. It is a beautiful design of God intended for pleasure and for delight. And the same people who needed to learn about our great high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high also needed to learn about love and marriage. That is the context. We need to learn about it as well. Which brings us to point number two, and that is that marriage is important. Now, by this, I do not mean, nor does God mean, that it is important for you to be married. Uh, Maybe it is God's will for you to remain single. Uh, Jesus tells us this in Matthew 19, 12. He says, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. It's what some people have called the gift of singleness. Uh, And when he says that people have made themselves eunuchs, he is speaking figuratively. This is a category that does not require surgery. There was an early theologian in the second century, a man by the name of Origen, who lived from 184 to 253 A.D., and he is said to have physically altered himself in an attempt to obey this verse. And then later he reconsidered and said, I might have interpreted that verse wrong. Well, it was too late then. Now, we don't know if this is true. We don't have his medical chart. But the point is, there is a category of singleness which is good and godly, and Jesus said that these people have made themselves eunuchs. Side note, this will not help in your sanctification, but true story. Our friend, Peter LaRuffa, was once driving his children somewhere in the car, and his son from the back seat, who was a little boy, said, Dad, what's a eunuch? Peter thought to himself, do I answer this question, or do I just keep driving? And he concluded, well, if he's asking the question, then He must know something, and so I'm going to answer the question. And as he's looking in the rearview mirror at his son's face as he is describing what a eunuch is, he finishes and he says to his son, 
do you understand now, son, what that is? And his son said, no, dad. I said, what is a unit? What is a unit? (laughs) True story. As I was saying, there is a category of singleness uh, which is good and godly. God does not require marriage. But the verse that we're studying today, Hebrews 13.4, says, let marriage be held in honor among all. Now, why in the world would he even include this verse in this book? Well, the easy answer is we're not 100% sure. Maybe this verse is in this book because of the influence of asceticism. What was asceticism? Well, asceticism taught that celibacy, celibacy took you to a higher level of holiness. And therefore, the author of Hebrews was perhaps correcting that error by saying, no, you have it all wrong. Marriage is actually a good thing. And singleness is acceptable, but it is not spiritually superior. Uh, Paul warned Timothy that one of the marks of a false teacher would be their prohibition of marriage. Uh, It is categorized by Paul to Timothy as a doctrine of demons. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, speaking of these false teachers who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. You see, asceticism is a false doctrine. There were, in fact, some in the church of Corinth who believed that married people uh, were less godly. And so what these people did is they wrote a letter to Paul, and they asked him, Paul, is that true? Are, um, are single people more godly? And Paul gives his response in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, well, what was the matter that they wrote to him about? Well, the first one is this. They wrote and they said, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, for a man not to be married. And what is Paul's response to that? Well, his response is, that's wrong. Paul says in verse 2, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So maybe Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 is there to combat the doctrine of asceticism, the false teaching of asceticism. But before we move on away from this topic, there are two items that I need to mention. First of all, it should not shock us to see so much perversion in the Roman Catholic Church in the priesthood. The reason I say that is because when they require celibacy in the priesthood, it is an unnatural, demonic, man-made prohibition which leads itself to sin. So it should not shock us. It should dismay us, but it should not shock us when we see that. The second thing that I want to point out about this false doctrine of asceticism is that some people have the gift of singleness. Most people do not, but some people do. And Paul, understanding that God has given us both the desire for intimacy and the means to enjoy it, says this in 1 Corinthians 7, 9, "...for it is better to marry than to burn with passion." 
Now, this verse does not mean that the vent referred to in 1 Corinthians 7, 9 is the only or the main or even the best reason to get, get married, but it is a factor. It is a factor. You see, 21st century American culture and society will tell you that what you need before you get married is education and financial stability and a secure job and a decent date at a wedding venue in order to get married. And these factors are more important than holiness. Uh, But the Bible will tell you that marriage is better than immorality. You see, if you were given the option of struggling and failing with lust versus moving up the wedding date, you should move up the wedding date. Uh, If you are given the option of an all-consuming preoccupation with carnal knowledge and versus waiting for that perfect someone to come along who is your rom-com soulmate, you should not value having a perfect soulmate as above struggling and failing at lust. You see, Paul is not saying rush into it, but at the same time, uh, he he would find a two-year engagement pretty difficult to justify if purity is a consideration. And so, if purity is not a consideration, well, then it doesn't matter when you get married or, quite frankly, if you get married. But if you are a Christian and purity is an issue, then what he's saying is a long engagement probably is not the wisest thing. Perhaps the author did have asceticism in mind, but there's another option. Maybe, maybe what the author had in mind is that there were aspects of the Roman culture which had infected the church, and by that I mean it was very acceptable in Roman culture for men to have a mistress. Maybe this promiscuity was being practiced and it was an acceptable option in the church. Uh, It certainly is an acceptable option in 2021. You know, as I was studying this week, I found it very interesting. I read many commentators on this verse, chapter 13, verse 4, and all of them, no matter when the commentary was written, would say something like this. The loose morals of our day and time call for us to pay special attention to this verse. That is true, but it is not unique because every generation thinks that their generation invented fornication. If you read John Gill from the 1700s, he will say, with the crisis that we have going on in our day and time with morality, we need to pay attention to this verse. And John Brown said the same thing in the 1800s, and John MacArthur said the same thing in the 1900s, and John Piper said the same thing in the 21st century. John Piper said, love is highly valued in our culture, but marriage is not. End quote, and he's right, but so were Gill and Brown and MacArthur. And if the Lord doesn't return, this is still going to be an issue 500,000 years from now. You see, maybe, just maybe, the Hebrew Christians who were living in Rome at this time were simply fallen sons of Adam living in a sinful city with a worldly bent and the devil working on them, which was lending itself toward infidelity. Well, 
whether the reason was asceticism or culture or just the fact that these people were fallen, whatever the reason may have been to dishonor marriage, notice that the author of Hebrews makes his case with a positive statement and not with a negative statement. And the positive statement is, let marriage be held in honor among all. Before we go on, sadly, I am in a position right now where I have to define the word marriage. Marriage is one man and one woman in a covenant relationship before God for life. Two people of the same gender, by definition, cannot be married. The scripture calls marriage between one man and one woman. Now, the scripture does allow for divorce and remarriage, and there are two exceptions or cases where this is true. The first is fornication. Jesus says in Matthew 19.9, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, implied in that that if you divorce your wife for sexual immorality because she has been unfaithful and marry another, you have not committed adultery. And abandonment is the other acceptable reason that a divorced person can remarry. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. But even though there are two exception clauses with respect to why there can be divorce and remarriage, God's definition of marriage and God's intention in marriage is that it be one man and one woman in a covenant relationship for life. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Or, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, verse 2, a married woman is bound to her husband by by law, bound by law to her husband while he lives. And then that statement of Jesus, which is so familiar to us in Matthew chapter 19, verse 6, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That is marriage. That's the definition of marriage biblically. Our text says, let marriage be held in honor among all. Our point, which is point number two, is that marriage is important How do we get that? We get that from the word honor. Let's examine that word. The word is defined as of exceptional value or highly prized. When it says honor, it means of exceptional value or highly prized. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, that same identical word is used to describe the precious stones in Solomon's temple. So, for example, in 1 Kings chapter 7, verses 9 through 11, it calls them costly stones. In other words, those stones were rare and expensive and valuable. Uh, a derivative of this word, stick, stick with me here because we're getting into some high weeds, a derivative of this word honored from the Greek is used as an adjective to describe the value of Christ's blood in 1 Peter chapter 1, 
verse 19. At the end of verse 18, it says that we were ransomed. Peter says we were ransomed. Well, how were we ransomed or with what were we ransomed? Where well, we were ransomed with something that is honorable or something that is valuable or expensive or precious. Peter goes on to say, we were ransomed, verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, which means we should just stop right here and ask the question, how precious and how rare and how valuable, how important is the blood or death of Jesus Christ? Well, if you're saved, you know the answer to that, because apart from the blood of Jesus Christ, we do not have any salvation. And if you are not saved today, the only way that you can be saved is to realize that you are a sinner and that Jesus, through his precious blood or his death, died in your place and rose again, and you are called upon to call on him and to repent of your sin and to believe in him. But the point that's being made here is that the blood of Christ is said to be precious or honorable, and marriage, using that same word or a derivative of that word, that base word in Greek, is that marriage is honorable. Here we have in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, the word that marriage is honorable. And if that's the case, and that same word is used to describe the blood of Christ, then it should be no shock to see how marriage is a picture of the gospel. Amen? Because Hebrews 5.25 says that husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, that is the elect, and gave himself up for her. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. Or as it says later in that passage, Ephesians 5 verses 31 and 32, the two shall become one flesh. This is a mystery, and this mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So once again, I make this point in order to stress how important the institution of marriage is to God. It is comparable to the gospel. But more importantly, for purposes of application today, I want you to notice how important this verse is in your own individual marriage. Again, Hebrews 13, 4, let marriage be held in honor among all. It means that marriage as an ordinance of God is valuable, and therefore it is wrong to cohabitate in an unmarried state. It is wrong to rush willy-nilly or unadvisedly into a marriage. It is wrong to view divorce as an out for irreconcilable differences. It is a big, serious, valuable deal for Christians and for non-Christians alike. Why? Because the text says it is to be held in honor among all, A-L-L. Marriage is a big deal for saved and for unsaved people, for Jews and for Christians, for Muslims and for Buddhists. And so, for example, when two unbelievers get married, even though they both might be atheists, their union is honorable and valuable in God's economy. It is just as much a marriage as if two born-again people were to get married. 
You see, whether you were a Christian or not, when you got married is absolutely irrelevant in terms of the sanctity of your vow. Marriage is to be honored among all. Marriage is important. And so, if you as a Christian marry an unsaved Christian, I'm I'm sorry, an unsaved person, uh, you are sinning against God when you marry them. Might be that you're not saved yourself. Maybe you are saved and you're just in a weak, backslidden state. Or maybe the reason why you married an unbeliever is because you weren't saved yourself. God is the judge. God knows. But whether you were saved or not, it is a sin to do so. But even though it was a sin to do so, you are just as married as two believers who say, I do. Furthermore, the institution of marriage should be celebrated and acknowledged as a big deal. And the reason that we should celebrate it and acknowledge it is because it is a big deal and it is to be honored by all and that includes the people of the church. And so Jesus attended a wedding in Cana of Galilee and he was obviously in favor of it. And how do we know that? Well, he assisted with the refreshments. We know that he was in honor of what was happening there. Now, you may not agree with someone's choice of a spouse, and you might think that they have really poor taste, and you might prophesy that they are really going to have trouble by marrying that person. But once the pastor, pardon me, once the pastor or the rabbi or the justice of the peace has said, I pronounce you husband and wife, and the marriage has been consummated, your opinion about their foolishness is now irrelevant. They are married in the eyes of God. They are married indeed. And as married people, that marriage is to be honored. Furthermore, we as Christians should do all that we can to help other marriages thrive and survive. Maybe this includes giving biblical counseling to some couple that is struggling. Maybe it includes giving some sort of babysitting so that they could go out on a date and spend some time together. Or maybe it means giving financial assistance to a struggling couple. I remember when we used to be poor. And I remember how we were encouraged and we were helped when someone would give us a few bucks that would help get us over the hump. Billy Joel, 1977, scenes from an Italian restaurant. They started to fight when the money got tight. They just didn't count on the tears. Money can help marriages. And as a church, maybe this means that as we schedule things, we should not overburden couples with activity so that they will have time to know one another and to enjoy one another. But once again, this is not to prioritize married people over single people, but it is to say that we should do all that we can to help and to prioritize healthy marriages within the church. But maybe the most helpful approach to this verse today, and maybe the best point of application that I will give you this morning, is for those of you that are married, to honor your own marriage by honoring your spouse with kindness and and self-sacrifice and chores. Yes, I'm listening to my own sermon and chores. (laughs) Taking walks, having conversations and using frequent expressions of love verbally. 
Here's some advice from that great theologian Otis Redding, who in 1966 said, try a little tenderness. Honoring your own marriage means that your spouse is more important than your children. Let me just pause right there and let that sink in and marinate. Oftentimes, what will happen in the depreciation of a marriage is a woman will have a baby, and then one or the other of the parent will emotionally attach themselves to the child at the expense of their spouse. Your relationship with your spouse is permanent. Your relationship with your child is temporary. You must prioritize your relationship with your spouse over that of your children. Furthermore, I hope I don't need to convince you of this very long or very much, but a husband-wife relationship is more important than your relationship with your father or your mother. In fact, I would say, humanly speaking, putting effort into your marriage is more important than anything that you're going to do in this life other than serving the Lord. So, point number two, marriage is important which brings us to point number three, and that is morality is important. Hebrews 13.4 says, And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Bed, there, is a euphemism for intimate relations. That is an aspect of marriage which is perfectly acceptable and glorifying to God. And Paul tells us that this intimacy is a two-way street and it is intended for mutual enjoyment. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Verse 4, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Furthermore, in this intimacy between married couples, the norm should be that couples come together frequently and with regularity. That's what Paul says in verse 5. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again. Why? So that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And that is not to say that there are not circumstances under which there would have to be a modification of this. I'm not going to get into the particulars there about that this morning, but it is to say, generally speaking, all things being equal, that it is a regular and a healthy part of a good marriage. And it's not just procreation, but it is also recreation. And once again, let me remind you that God is the one who invented it. He is the one who designed it. But like everything else in God's creation, sin and the wicked hearts of men and women have distorted and twisted a very beautiful thing into a miserable sadness. Before I continue with my sermon today, I'm going to interrupt myself and inject something into the sermon which is not in my notes. That is, I am going to agree with everything that I am about to say. I believe it with all of my heart. 
forgive me if I say it in a tone which may come across as condemnatory or judgmental. That is not my intention. My intention with the remaining words that I will say in this sermon are intended because I love you and because I love truth and because of the sadness that I have seen with my own eyes that dishonoring God in this area brings. And so I am not standing up here with you as my punching bag this morning. In love, I want you to hear this and I want you to be happy and joyful. Let me continue. Satan delights to take God's glorifying gifts and use them for tools of destruction. See, God's rule is this. You can eat from any tree you want to, but there's one tree in the middle of the garden, and you eat from that tree, well, you will die. Satan's plea to the woman is this. Eat from the forbidden tree. You will be better off if you do. Well, I want to tell you today that eating fruit is not a sin unless it is from the tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of which God said, don't eat from that tree. Drinking alcohol is not a sin unless it leads to drunkenness. Saving money is not a sin unless it leads to greed and covetousness. Ambition is not a sin unless it leads to envy and jealousy. Conjugal intimacy is not a sin unless it leads to being with someone else or lusting after someone else who is not your legally wedded spouse. Satan takes that which is good and uses it to make us sad and to make us stupid. Hebrews 13.4 says, The marriage bed is wonderful. It is wonderful. But don't you dare defile it with fornication or adultery. What is fornication? Fornication is a broad word. It is an all-inclusive word. It is a term that describes anything that is of a salacious nature outside of marriage. This would include, but is not limited to, sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or simply fooling around but coming shy of consummation. It includes, but is not limited to, relations with someone who is of the same gender. It includes, but is not limited to, viewing images which might stimulate or awaken lust. That is a broad definition of fornication. Adultery is more specific. Adultery is something... Um, which might include some of the activities listed in fornication, but one or both of the parties are married. And Satan and the world and the flesh, based upon your preference, will tempt you and tell you, God does not know what he is talking about. If you want joy, real joy, wonderful joy, and pleasure, and thrills, and delight, you have to climb out of the marriage bed, and you have to explore and mine the treasures of carnal lust. Go for it, you animal. Sometimes this sin is driven simply by our physical appetites. Sometimes the sin is driven by depression or loneliness. Sometimes it is driven by 
a thirst for companionship. Sometimes it is driven by the idolatry of romance. Sometimes it is in a quest for acceptance and for a plethora of other reasons. But the bottom line is this. Satan knows your sinful heart, and he knows what you crave, and he is a master at luring even those who are closest to the heart of God away from God into sins of lust. See David and Bathsheba. Now, I don't think I need to say much more on this right now because experientially, you as sons and daughters of Adam know exactly what I'm talking about. As image bearers of God, we seek for pleasure. And again, for the third time, let me reiterate, that is not bad. That is good. That is the design of God. But as sons and daughters of Adam... We're looking for love in all the wrong places. Johnny Lee, 1980. We are looking for love in all the wrong places. Hebrews 13.4 not only tells us that it must be confined to our spouse, but he tells us why. And I find it very interesting as to what this verse does not say. There is only one motivation given in this verse. Nothing, not a word, is said about the potential breakdown of the home. There is not a word about trust being destroyed. There is nothing about contracting a disease nor having an unwanted pregnancy. The author does not mention the financial risks involved in promiscuity, like it says in Proverbs 6.26, for by means of a harlot a man is reduced to a crust of bread. We read nothing in Hebrews 13.4 about guilt or sadness or depression or addiction. There is no mention of tears and crying and children being separated from their parents every other weekend. There is not a syllable about one's testimony being compromised, nor the shame that it brings to the church. There's none of that. This author has one bullet And if this one bullet will not knock you down, if it will not convince you for the need for purity, then there is nothing else that can be said. The text says, look at it, God will, future sense, will judge the sexually immoral and the adulteress. God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulteress. It does not say, as it said back in chapter 12, that he will discipline or chasten them for their good. This is not speaking about a judgment which leads to correction. This is speaking about the final judgment day, the great and terrible day of the Lord. This is speaking about a final, definitive pronouncement of guilt at the judgment bar of God. It is is final. There are no appeals. God's wrath awaits you. You will go to hell. That is the one motivation. You will go to hell. Now let me be clear. Please do not believe the lie that you have Jesus as your insurance policy. This is a false doctrine, and it's very common in churches, and it says something like this. I got, watch it, saved, 
And since I accepted Jesus into my heart, and since I am trusting in his blood and righteousness and not my own works, therefore, Hebrews 13, 4, and the warning there does not apply to me. You see, I am covered with the blood of Christ. I have salvation, and salvation is not of works. Therefore, this judgment in Hebrews 13, 4 does not apply to me. If you are a fornicator or an adulterer, it does apply to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Look at the next four words, because the next four words might be the difference between you going to heaven and going to hell. Do not be deceived. Why in the world would Paul tell these people, do not be deceived? Because there is a danger of deception when it comes to this. And Paul says, I don't want you to be tricked. I don't want you to be duped. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, what happened then? How is it that anybody does inherit the kingdom of God? Through faith in Christ and repentance. That's what he says in verse 11. And such were, W-E-R-E, were, not R-A-R-E, but were, W-E-R-E. And such were some of you. But something happened. What happened? But you were washed. Washed with what? Washed with the blood of Jesus Christ, the honorable, precious blood of Christ. But you were washed. You were sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You were justified by God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were saved. And when you were saved, those things were taken out of, taken out of your life. And if you claim to be saved, yet those things are in an unrepentant, habitual pattern of your life, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. People who live like that will not inherit the kingdom of God. Many are deceived into thinking that they can simultaneously violate this commandment and at the same time be on their way to heaven. Now, I don't know who told you that. But sadly, I want to tell you, many told me that. I heard it in churches. I heard it from my Christian friends. I was taught this in my campus ministry, Campus Crusade for Christ, and sadly, I believed it, and sadly, very sadly, I acted upon my errant theology. It was miserable. Thankfully, Very thankfully, my merciful, kind, loving Savior rescued me by granting me repentance. I'm not going to go into detail. It is far too embarrassing and it is far too shameful. But I can recall very clearly being a Christian, I think. And I actually think I may have been a Christian. But boy, did I have bad theology. I was a Christian, and at the same time, I had no fear of God. And then one night, 
out of nowhere. I wasn't looking for it. I, I, I wasn't seeking to be, to, be, to be hit by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. But one night, out of nowhere, being struck with an awareness of the holy of God, holiness of God, and immediately I was overwhelmed with an intense fear of God's wrath, and immediately there was a radical desire to repent, like I could not repent thoroughly enough and quickly enough, and I also had a frantic desire to call on Jesus to forgive me. And I want to tell you that if he had not impressed that upon my heart, If the good shepherd had not left the ninety and nine and come after me, the one wandering sheep, I would have gladly sailed all the way to hell, confident that I was on my way to heaven. You see, the one bullet that this author uses to warn his audience is that God will judge the immoral. Morality is important. And so, dear friend, today, as we close... The applications will come in the form of three questions, and all three questions have to do with the subject of faith. What do you really believe? And let's be really clear. What you believe is not what you think in your mind. You can agree with something intellectually and still not, by the biblical definition of faith, believe it. I'm going to ask you what you believe. Here are three questions. Number one, do you really believe that God knows what he is talking about and that he has communicated honestly when he says that joy in the physical, intimate realm must be confined to marriage? Or do you believe that you are smarter than God and that you can achieve joy and delight outside of those boundaries. In other words, do you think God is telling the truth when he says that this expression of intimacy must be confined to marriage? Do you think that joy and delight is there, or do you think that you know better than God and that you can exit the marriage bed and find that delight? What do you believe? If you were to be honest, you would have to say, my actions speak, my actions convey what I believe. I don't believe God knows what he's talking about. Question number two, do you believe that God is being truthful when he promises to judge the immoral? Is, is, he, is, is, is this just a ploy on, on God's part just to kind of get you back in line, but it's an empty threat? Do you believe that God is being truthful when he promises to judge the immoral? And if you believe him, do you feel that fear in your heart which would cause you to frantically repent? Or, or does this warning, which you might intellectually agree with, yes, I'm a Christian, I believe that the Bible is true. And the words are not hard to understand. You've explained them thoroughly. I believe it, yes, but I am unmoved. I am unmoved. You see, the difference between genuine repentance and a mere theological, empty, mental assent to the warning is faith. What makes the difference is faith. And I'm asking a question about faith. Has God granted you the faith to believe that this this is a real warning and the faith to repent. 
And most importantly, question number three, do you have the faith to believe in Jesus and his precious honorable blood? Do you have the faith to believe in Jesus and his substitutionary death in your place and resurrection? Do you have faith to believe in Jesus as the one who will remove your defilement from this sin? You see, the command is to have an undefiled marriage bed. That standard will never change. Now, whether in actuality uh, you defile the marriage bed by getting together with another human being, or whether your defilement of the marriage bed is contained to your eyes in front of a screen, or whether it is simply something that is going on in your heart, we are defiled. We, as sinners, are defiled. Jesus said in Matthew 5.28, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so now, how am I going to cleanse my defilement? Well, I will listen to everything that the pastor says, and I will do my best to feel as guilty as possible. You know that guilt, feeling guilty, has never removed one sin, nor has it ever helped anyone. Well, I'm going to cry. You just have a good cry, and you cleanse yourself. If my tears could forever flow, all for sin could not atone. Crying is not going to help you. Accountability. That's what I need. I need an accountability partner. Do you know that accountability has never washed away one sin? What you need is Jesus. What you need is faith in Jesus. I need to believe with all of my heart, 1 John 1, 7, that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The only hope that I can offer you is Jesus. You can't do enough good works and you can't feel bad enough. You can't cry enough tears to get any kind of help. What you need is Jesus. And so I'm asking, do you have that faith in Jesus? There's a difference between knowing that Jesus forgives those who call upon him and personally by faith believing in his cleansing blood and calling upon him sincerely and genuinely, or as I said earlier, frantically to forgive and to wash and to cleanse and to restore you. I'll close with this. Why is it? I, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I think I know the answer, but, but in part I'm sort of just asking the question, why is it that so many understand uh, that these sins are so serious and they understand that they must repent. And they understand that only Jesus can wash away their sins and make them pure. And they pray and they confess and they set up accountability, but nothing changes. Why is it that people understand every word that I'm saying today, but yet nothing changes? I think the answer is an absence of faith. Whatever is not of faith is sin. And faith is more than just an intellectual understanding. It is a supernatural gift from God, 
which he sovereignly distributes to those who are broken and desperate and sincere. To call upon the Lord is not an act of quiet solace where you just say, I think the pastor was hitting on a nerve today. I think that some of the things that he said should be well considered. No, to call upon the Lord is a cry from a desperate heart to be right with God at all cost. In other words, it is faith. And so I ask, has God the Holy Spirit given you faith to trust in Jesus to cleanse your defilement by his precious blood? You know, I'm, I'm a lot in my pessimism. I'm a lot like John Gill, John Brown, John MacArthur, John Piper. I, I sometimes feel that we as the 21st century church, we're just fighting a losing battle against immorality. But I need to remind myself and I need to remind you that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation and Jesus can cleanse your defilement. No matter how dark, no matter how prolonged, no matter how sordid, the blood of Jesus can cleanse your defilement. And so I admonish you to cry out to him in faith. Father in heaven, I've asked the people today to do something which is impossible. Or they might want to do it, but it is impossible. Lord, would you please do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Grant us the faith to trust you. And then God, for your glory, deliver us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.